Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This is episode 500 of the Theopolis Podcast. We are so thankful for each and every one of you who tune in and listen as we discuss Bible liturgy and culture each week. And we look forward to seeing how this podcast continues to grow and how it's used to build up the kingdom in years to come. In this episode, the guys will be discussing the announcement to Mary, the birth of Jesus, and some events surrounding his birth as we begin to wrap up our series on types of the nativity. We do want to encourage you if you are able to become a partner with us at the Theopolis Institute. And here's a quick word from Peter Lightheart inviting you to join us. The church and the world need Theopolis now more than ever. The last two years have been years of upheaval. The COVID pandemic and the aftermath and the response of the pandemic have overturned many of our assumptions about how our world works. There's confusion over the last few years about populism and nationalism. Churches are divided about the pandemic. Churches are divided about the political situation. And there's increasing pressure on Christians to conform to the anti-Christian cultural norms that surround us. It feels like the world is cracking apart. The world is going crazy and we're surrounded by fear and despair and pessimism. Theopolis has a clear vision for the present and for the future. We want to train the sons of Issachar who know the times and know what should be done. The key to the future is strong, vibrant churches. Churches that provide family structures for the members of the churches. Churches that are like the city of God. Churches that are the nation, the people of God. Churches that are deeply rooted in scripture in all its beauty and depth and power. Churches that worship with vigor and joy, singing psalms and gathering around the Lord's table. Churches that carry out the mission of the church with service and witness and cultural transformation. Above all, Theopolis has a hopeful vision. The church is the light of the world, reflecting the light of Jesus and the light overcomes the darkness. The church is the spring of living water that refreshes the dry land and turns the salt water fresh. The church is the body of Christ who is the triumphant savior. Theopolis doesn't offer a program or an agenda for surviving the times, but for victory in the midst of challenging times. Please support us because the church and the world need Theopolis now more than ever. And with that, if you would like to become a partner or to join us in our work financially, I have a link to our give page down there in the show notes. With that, we want to thank you again so much for listening to this podcast. And we hope that you are encouraged and sharpened by this conversation over these texts. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John discussing the birth of Christ. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Leidart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James Bijan, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background. Uh, Merry Christmas to you all. This is uh, going to be published, broadcast after Christmas. We hope you had a great holiday and a great Advent season. We're continuing and concluding our series in types of the nativity that we started just before Advent, and we're going to continue it for this week and next week, carrying the uh, theme over into the 
the uh, full Christmas holidays beyond Christmas Day itself into the into the 12 days of Christmas. What we've been looking at are birth stories in the Bible, and especially uh, birth stories in the book of Genesis, and looking at them as types and shadows of the coming Messiah, the miracle births of the various patriarchs to barren women, which are foreshadowing the miracle birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. Uh, and then a couple of weeks ago, we skipped ahead to the New Testament and started looking at New Testament birth stories, the birth of Jesus and the Annunciation birth of John in Luke's gospel. And uh, we're looking at them with a particular perspective, thinking about them as fulfillment of the type, fulfillments of the types of the nativity that we've been looking at in the previous sections. Uh, so this week, we're going to be looking again at Luke. We had looked at a portion of Luke 1 a couple weeks ago, or maybe, maybe it was the last episode, but we focused on the angel Gabriel's annunciation to Zacharias about the upcoming birth of John and then the birth of John itself. Uh, this week, we're going to be focusing on Mary, Jesus, the annunciation to Mary, uh, the birth of Jesus, uh, and surrounding episodes in Jesus' early life. The two sections of Luke's nativity stories are clearly parallel to each other. That is the Annunciation to Zechariah, the Annunciation to Mary, and then the Annunciation to the shepherds. They're all very strongly parallel to each other, which puts the birth stories also parallel to each other. Uh, in each case, we have an introduction of a character. We have an introduction of Zechariah as a priest at the beginning of Luke's gospel. We have the introduction of Mary at the beginning of her story in Luke 1, 26 and 27. She's a virgin engaged to Joseph, who's of the descendants of David, and her name is given. And then we have an introduction of the shepherds there out in the fields at night near Bethlehem. In each case, an angel appears. In each case, the reaction is one of fear, or in Mary's case, a kind of perplexity or agitation. The shepherds are frightened. The angel reassures each character, assures Zechariah, assures Mary, assures the shepherds, do not fear. And then there's an enunciation of a conception or a birth. So Gabriel tells Zacharias, Elizabeth in her old age, barren Elizabeth is going to have a son. Mary is told that you're going to conceive by the power of the Spirit and you're going to bear a son. And then, of course, with the shepherds, it's an enunciation of the birth of Jesus, which has just taken place. In each case, this birth announcement includes a name. Uh, John is named by the angel Gabriel. Gabriel names Jesus uh, and then uh, and gives a series of titles to Jesus. Uh, and then uh, the Christ is announced to, to the shepherds, the Lord Christ. And then we have, also in each case, we have a reaction. They, they, uh, there's a description. The angel describes what the mission of this character is going to be. Gabriel describes the mission of John. And then he describes the mission of Jesus, which is to rule over Jacob and to, to assume the throne of David. And then there's a, a sign given to the shepherds. Zechariah and, and Mary both ask questions to Gabriel. And Gabriel answers those questions uh, with Zechariah. Gabriel rebukes the question with Mary. He answers the question by assuring her that she'll be uh, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have a, a, if you chart it out, there's a very similar procedure going through here. And there's a literary device going on there, of course, the parallels between John and Jesus. John is a forerunner of Jesus. But I think that the, the parallels are so strong that we're supposed to think not only that John is a forerunner of Jesus, which he is, he's the one who prepares the way for the Messiah, but John is also kind of the last of the types of the Messiah. His miracle conception is the last barren woman who conceives that type scene that we have had throughout the Old Testament that we've been looking at over the last couple of months. 
Uh, John is the last example of that just before Jesus. So we have John as a, uh, John's birth story, his conception and birth story is a type of the coming Messiah. And then of course, his ministry is not just a preparation for the ministry of Jesus, but it shapes the ministry of Jesus. It foreshadows the ministry of Jesus. He announces, he's announcing the near approach of the kingdom. He's announcing the need for repentance. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he brings those same messages. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. So the parallels, the literary parallels that we have between John and Jesus are setting us up for a the relationship between the two, their two missions and ministries. Um, within the parallels, of course, we have a very strong contrast. John is designated as one who's going to prepare the people. He's going to turn the people of Israel back to the Lord, their God. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. The disobedient are going to be restored to the attitude of the righteous. But then Jesus is going to come and Jesus is given these royal titles. He's going to be the son of the most high. John, of course, is not given that that title. He's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will be a kingdom that never ends. And so within that typology, the the parallels that we're seeing, we also have this advance, an advance from uh, John who is preparing for the coming of the Lord to Jesus, who is, who is himself the Lord. So um, that kind of sets up the, the uh, organization of uh, Luke's uh, first couple of chapters. He's, he's alternating back and forth in a certain sense between John and Jesus, but you also have these parallels bit, built in that set up John as a kind of type and shadow of the immediately following Messiah. Peter, you mentioned these correspondences between <clears throat> the two birth scenes, but there's some contrast too. Um, with Elizabeth and Zechariah, you have a need, uh, but not with Mary. Her virginity isn't presented as a as something, well, as her desire, as her need, but an obstacle to overcome. And I think the narrative points to the real need, which is Israel's need in the background uh, for a Messiah, for a king. And also, John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty important distinction. Uh, Gabriel appears to Zechariah at the center. Well, yeah, it's center of Jewish culture, the temple, you know, about as close as you can get to the Holy of Holies. But Gabriel appears to, to Mary in Nazareth. That's in Galilee. It's far away from the big city in the temple, an insignificant, maybe even despised, kind of almost unclean place for the rulers, according to the rulers in Israel. Um, of course, Zechariah responds with unbelief, Mary with submission, reverent submission. Yeah, maybe we can pick up on the last comment you made. This is uh, going a little bit ahead in the text, but uh, what do you all make of the contrast between Gabriel's response to um, Zechariah's question and his response to Mary's question? Jeff, you just characterized that as a contrast. I think you'd said something like unbelief and submission, but uh, both of them are asking questions that could be taken as skeptical questions. How is this going to happen? Questions are similar. So why does Gabriel respond so differently to them? Before answering those sorts of questions, I think it's worth noticing that the very similarities of these things in close proximity suggest that the author wants us to ask those sorts of questions. Um, There are various other accounts in scripture where we have two characters' response to a very or similar questions or similar response to a challenge being held up against each other. And we're supposed to, for that reason, I think, juxtapose them in some way. So we might think of the story of um, 
the raising of Lazarus and Martha and Mary's response to Jesus when he arrives and the way that they speak to him. Or we might think about the visitation of the angels to Abraham and Lot. The two stories held alongside each other invite us to ask the sort of questions. Um, So it shouldn't necessarily be seen as a problem, um, but as something that invites uh, inquiry and maybe helps us to clarify the difference between a, a proper response Um, which does allow for those sorts of questions and an improper response, as we see in the case of Zechariah. It it appears that Zechariah's question arose from disbelief. I mean, that's what the angel says. Somehow the angel interprets his question, which is almost the same question, as you noted, Peter, as Mary's, how shall this be? But in verse 20 of chapter 1, the angel interprets it as... um, Zechariah not believing his words, whereas Mary believes, and, and Elizabeth even mentions this later when Mary visits her, that, that Mary believed the word of the, uh, the angel. Yeah, I wonder, does it have anything to do, do you think, with the situation that the two are in? I mean, Zechariah and Elizabeth are in a classic Abraham, Sarah, uh, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel situation. This is something that the Lord has done forever right back to the beginning of Israel's history, uh, given children to barren, to a barren woman. So um, how, how can I know that this, hap- this will happen? You have an angel talking to you, plus it's something that the Lord characteristically does. Mary's question is um, about a situation that is unprecedented. The Lord has not done this before. And so there's a, does, does that, do you, th- do you think that background has anything to do with the, the difference in uh, Gabriel's response? Yes, I mean, you could even say that Mary's question, how will this be, isn't really doubting it, but it's just asking, you know, how that's actually going to come to pass. So there is a big difference, isn't there? Yeah, so maybe the maybe the question, we can imagine what Mary's speculating about, what Mary's thinking. An angel says, you're going to bear a son. And she's thinking, is it going to happen after I marry Joseph, to whom I'm already engaged? Uh, is it going to happen? You know, there, there's all kinds of ways it could happen. Uh, so yeah, I think the, the the force of the question on the how, I think that's a very good that's a very good point because uh, Zechariah's question is a question about knowledge. How how can he know this? <clears throat> Mary's question is about the the Lord's uh, action and the you know the, the way that it's going to come about. In addition, I think it's worth observing the way that Zechariah becomes the chief witness to. Um, this remarkable promise and the destiny of the child later on when his tongue is opened it is Zechariah that serves as the um, confirming sign of the destiny of John and his praise that is delivered through the power of the Holy Spirit is something that suggests that what's taking place here is not so much a strict punishment it actually accentuates the sign when John is actually born. And it's a rebuke, but it's not um, It's not a strong punishment. Yeah, great point. Great point. Well, one of the effects of the, the contrast, though, is that uh, Zechariah has this vision. Uh, Zechariah has given this information. He's asked a question and he's muted <laughs> until John is born. And he names John as, the, as Gabriel had told him. Uh, in contrast, Mary is able to respond to the angel's 
Angel's ex- explanation and declare her submission to the word of the Lord that's been given to her. So that you have this kind of closure in the case of Mary that doesn't happen until um, nine months later for, for Zechariah. And one of the things that's remarkable about all of these stories is the the regular appearance of angels. I mean, it happens in Matthew's gospel, the other collection of infancy stories that we have about Jesus. There's angels appearing to, uh, to uh, Joseph, angels appearing to uh, the wise men. There's angels guiding, thing all, guiding things all the way through. Here again, we have Gabriel appear in twice. We have another angel who's unnamed appear at the beginning of chapter two when he appears to the uh, shepherds. We have a, a ho- the heavenly host is appearing. This is the thickest cluster of angelic appearances we've had we've had ever in the Bible, and I think it's an indication that heaven and the heavenly hosts are moving toward earth as as the sun takes flesh. We also have the the heavenly choir, heavenly messengers that are also entering into the earthly sphere, and we have this union of heaven and earth that's taking place. It's also an indication that the old age is reaching its fulfillment here. Um, you have this cluster, as you say, of angelic voices, presence, uh, singing, um, and they're, they're going to give way to this this newborn son, uh, kind of like what Hebrews is all about, especially the first two chapters, where angels are mentioned over and over again, to which of the angels did God ever say, and it looks like the angelic administration, the management of the world, the management of Israel is now coming to its um, its end point. Uh, it's, it was all about bringing the promised seed into the world, and that's happening now. One of the things I noticed as I was going through these uh, chapters the last uh, few days uh, was uh, repeated references and allusions to the book of Judges. They're uh, not, not quotations, and, and I mean, Luke doesn't do what Matthew does, which is to quote a passage from the Old Testament, say this was this happened in order to fulfill some earlier passage of Scripture, uh, but his writing is so saturated with Scripture that there's uh, it's it's the it's woven into the story itself, and you have these phrases and allusions that that uh, bring us into a kind of judges scenario. We talked in in uh, a previous episode about an angel appearing uh, to announce a birth, going back to. Uh, the birth and the and the conception of Samson. So there's that general parallel, but then we also have this uh, phrase in uh, verse 28, uh, Luke 1:28, when Gabriel comes in, "Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you," which is the angel of the Lord's greeting to Gideon when he first comes. And of course, Gideon is skeptical that the Lord, is, if the Lord is with us, why aren't why are we in why are we enslaved? Uh, later on, of course, uh, Elizabeth is going to say that Mary is most blessed among women, which is a phrase that's used for jail, uh, the woman who crushes the head of Sisera with a tent peg. Um, we have the spirit coming on Mary. The spirit overshadows Mary, which is, I think, picking up on a different Old Testament type. But verse 35 says the spirit will come upon her, uh, which is language that's similar to the language of the judge's when this, when they go out to war, when they get ready for battle, the spirit comes on them, and then they go out and they uh, fight and defeat the enemies of Israel. So it, it, we have these connections. It's and it's it's Mary who's being connected with these characters in the Judges. She's being connected with um, Gideon. It's not Jesus who's the new Gideon, but Mary is in some sense the one who is with whom the with whom the one who's who is uh, 
accompanied by the Lord. She's the one who's taking that role. Uh, she's the one who's now clothed with the spirit. She's not going to go out and do battle like the judges do, but she's going to engage in the kind of warfare that a mother does, which is to bear the child who's going to be the warrior. Uh, but uh, all these all these illusions set us up, of course, for Jesus as the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent serpent's head. But it's almost as if Mary is also kind of incorporated into that work, and she becomes a co-head crusher with Jesus. In addition to the judges' illusions, we've already noted the way that the beginning of Luke plays off the beginning of, of the book of First Samuel. And I think that helps us to see some of the aspects of the story in sharper relief. So, for instance, we've talked about the contrast between Zechariah and Mary, and we can see something of the failure of perception of Eli at the beginning of 1 Samuel and the perception of Hannah. I think we also see the strong similarities between the Magnificat and the prayer of Hannah, and also the descriptions of, um, of Samuel as a Nazarite, the fact also the way that his growth is described at key junctures um, is very similar to the way that the growth of both John the Baptist and Jesus are described within chapters one and two. So, so much of that background of the judges, whether in the book of Judges or in the book of First Samuel, where Samuel is one of the last of the judges, does come in to the book of Luke here. And I think it also helps us to see something of the prominence of the role of the spirit here against the, the dark backdrop that we see, for instance, in the book of the Judges, where the failure of perception of the high priest is connected with the darkness of the people. The, the lamp of God has not yet gone out. There is no prop word of the Lord in the land, and the eyes of the high priest are growing dim. There's a sort of threefold dimming of the light. And there's something similar here, but the and failure of perception is actually reversed, and the person who lacked perception actually becomes um, the great prophet, declaring the destiny of the of the children. That's interesting, Alistair, the connection with Samuel, because as you were talking, then I, I was thinking about the fact that when we're introduced to Samuel initially in his story, we're not really given his full genealogy. He's kind of traced back to, I think it's a guy named. Zuf, um, who is described as an, an Ephraimite. And so it's not immediately um, clear that, that he has this priestly um, uh, lineage. We, we get that much later in um, 1 Chronicles. And when we do get that um, genealogy in, in 1 Chronicles, um, you then start wondering, well, how, how was Eli ever a, a priest? Because we don't get his genealogy in anywhere in scripture. And it, it seems that he, he may have been on uh, holding the priesthood illegitimately. And it, I guess it just reminds me of the, the way in which Luke um, opens. We, we don't instantly get um, Jesus's genealogy until we get to chapter three. And it does seem that his Davidic um, ancestry was not, not clear to everyone. And so there are questions raised um over his um, origins, and obviously he does ultimately supplant the the priesthood at the time, and so there seems to be um, seems to be the way in which Jesus arises from uh, a slightly unknown or, or at least lesser known background. Yeah, really interesting point about Eli lacking a genealogy. I mean, that uh, could be that uh, he's an illegitimate priest, or it could be it is you know a literary device with the 
uh, leaving out the the genealogy to indicate that he's even though he's uh, technically uh, uh, technically qualified to become a priest, in fact he's disqualified. I mean, I, I think of the similar kind of literary device with uh, Athaliah, who is never given a uh, you know, all the way through Kings you have. You have king's reigns begin with a formulaic phrase. Their, their, their reigns end with a formulaic statement. But neither of those is found in the reign of Athaliah. So she's being literarily declared illegitimate. Uh, uh, Kevin Rowe's uh, work on Luke has been really helpful to me. And these early chapters in, uh, I can't remember the full title of the book. The subtitle, I think, is Early Narrative Christology. Um, but he talks about the use of kurios throughout these chapters. Uh, that's the Greek word that's translated as Lord. It's the Greek word that was typically used uh, in the Septuagint to translate to uh, Yahweh or the Tetragrammaton. In most of the cases, uh, that's the use in Luke uh, Luke 1 and 2. And we have uh, the temp- uh, 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 Zechariah is in the temple of the Curios, temple of the Lord. Um, there, uh, Elizabeth and uh, Zacharias are both walking blamelessly in the requirements of the Lord, the law of the Lord. Uh, John is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. I mean, all these uses are clearly uses that have to do with, uh, are, are referring to the God of Israel. Uh, but then when you have Jesus introduced, you have Jesus announced as the son of the most high, the Lord God will give him the throne of his uh, father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. All those are statements that could be made of a human king, even the phrase son of the most high, that's, that's Davidic language for the, for the king. The descendant of David is going to be not only the son of David, but also the son of Yahweh. Uh, but then when we have Jesus uh, appear and come into the scene in person, the first time he actually uh, enters the, enters the uh, story in person, not just talked about, but actually, actually there in the picture, he's, he's not visible. He's, he's in utero. Uh, but when uh, Mary visits Elizabeth and her baby leaps in the presence of Mary's baby, uh, she asks the question, uh, how, what has happened to me that the, the, the mother of my Lord should come to me? That's in Luke 143. Given the surroundings, Lord is uh, filled with all this uh, th- thick theological content. And then Elizabeth acknowledges and recognizes the one that Mary is carrying is also my Lord. Uh, she also talks about the the uh, uh, angel who been spoke, ha, had spoken to Mary by the Lord, from the Lord, in verse 45. Uh, and so the, the, the whole section is surrounded by references to the Lord God, but then Jesus is designated as my Lord. And uh, Roe, I think, um, accurately says that this is a hint of what develops as Trinitarian theology. We already have the son of Mary being designated as the Lord, and Mary is already being designated as uh, the 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 bearer of the Lord, uh, God bearer, the mother of God, as uh, later um, later Orthodoxy designates her. As the Church <clears throat> reflected on this, you have to ask the question: Why a virgin birth? Uh, why not just another barren woman uh, in the line of David who gives birth to uh, a Messiah, an anointed one? Um, Luke doesn't come out and give us an explicit answer to that question. The, um, uh, the angel doesn't explain why uh, Mary, the, the young woman who hasn't known a man, is going to be pregnant. 
but as the early as the church reflected on this, the, the um, well, of course, there's some answers I think that are beside the point. Like uh, the the husband is the bearer of the sin nature, and so Jesus um, is uh, uh, only born of a woman. That doesn't quite make sense because Jesus, uh, in his humanity, is uh, of the flesh of his mother. Um, so, and the mother also bears the same kind of dilapidated death nature as um, Joseph did. So I don't think that, or the act of sex, somehow the act of sex is what triggers the sin uh, nature or the sin orientation of the new man. The answer that everybody gave is, well, this, if you have um, a, an ordinary birth, like with Zachariah and Elizabeth, then you have a new human person, John, uh, John the baptizer. Uh, here, there's no human, new human person. There's a divine person who comes into the world, unites himself to the humanity, our humanity, uh, the flesh of Mary. And that makes the most sense. It's not really explained here, but it sure is an adequate answer to the question, why a virgin birth? No human person, a divine person, uh, now who has added to himself um, our humanity. As the angel does explicitly say, that the agent for that incarnation, the agent by which the Son takes on his humanity, is the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned the first part of verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, which has a uh, similar to the kind of language that's used in the Old Testament for the clothing of the Spirit or the power of the Spirit. But the power, the power of the Most High overshadowing you uh, picks up another sort of uh, thread a typological thread that the, that verb is used right at the end of Exodus after the tabernacle is finished and the, the glory of the Lord comes and overshadows the tabernacle and consecrates and sanctifies it. Uh, and so the spirit overshadowing Mary uh, is, uh, is consecrating her as a vessel that's going to carry the Christ child, the Holy offspring, the Holy one is conceived by the Holy spirit and Mary is sanctified by the spirit for that, for that purpose. Uh, which is creates as a um, a number of uh, number of theologians point out creates an interesting kind of variation on our on our typical trinitarian kinds of thinking. Uh, we usually think of Father, Son, Spirit as the order of the Trinity. That that order is found in the New Testament, but here we have the Father incarnating the Son through the agency of the Spirit. So the order is Father, Spirit, Son. The Father sends the Spirit to overshadow Mary, so the Son can be formed. Is, as a man in Mary's womb, uh, and it has a, an, an interesting, very an interesting Trinitarian dynamic that's going on there. Another thing we can notice here that we've remarked upon to some extent in um, in the past is just the prominence of the Spirit as an indication that this is anticipating a greater outpouring of the Spirit. So some have spoken of this particular event as a sort of Marian Pentecost that Mary experiences a Pentecost in advance. And there are so many people within these stories that are filled with the Holy Spirit. We can think about the way that Mary is filled with the Spirit. Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit and prophesies. Um, John the Baptist in the womb um, by the Spirit responds to Christ. We can think about the way that Zechariah speaks by the Holy Spirit. Then in the temple, um, Simeon comes into the temple by the Spirit and prophesies by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet we don't have that many references to the Spirit after that within the Gospel of Luke, um, 
beyond the baptism of Christ until later on when we hear about the promise of being clothed with power from on high. This is, in many respects then, a sort of Pentecost in advance. And many of the other aspects of this story don't just look back to previous stories. They anticipate something that's going to happen in the future. So we can see that in the ways that later on the stories of Jesus' childhood in the, in the temple, um, the three days being missing and then being found in the temple, this um, all happening at the time of the Passover. We have something similar in the way that Jesus' birth is followed by 40 days later being presented in the temple and there's a speech there, there's constant prayer. All of these things are repeated at the time of his death, resurrection and ascension. And I think another thing that we can see here is the, the way in which Christ is playing out in advance the destiny of his people, even in the moment of his birth. And Mary also is anticipating what's going to be the case for the church when the spirit descends upon the church and Christ is formed within her too. And so we can think of some of the other parallels. We can think about the way in which the shepherds and their sign connects with the apostles and their witnessing of the sign of the empty tomb. The baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in the manger corresponds with the body that's wrapped in linen garments and laid in the tomb. But now the sign is that it's no longer in the tomb. The linen garments are left behind. And there's a Mary and Joseph at the birth, Mary and Joseph at the death. And so many of these things, I think, help us to see that this story doesn't just look back. It anticipates and foreshadows the destiny of Christ in his salvation and the greater rebirth of the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost that will follow that. In one of the previous episodes, we talked about uh, the conception of birth of John and uh, Zechariah's uh, song after John's birth, when his when his tongue is loosed and he begins to speak again, he sings uh, the Benedict. What we think of what we know as the Benedictus. Mary also sings when uh, she visits Elizabeth. Uh, she greets Elizabeth. Elizabeth's baby leaps at the presence of the Lord in the womb, and then Mary sings the song of uh, exaltation, which is. Uh, very similar in its content to the song of Zechariah. It has to do with the, the uh, uh, fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, the fulfillment of his covenant. It has to do, too, one of the central things that's going on in the Magnificat is the overturning of the order of things in Israel, that uh, the Lord is coming and uh, those who are humbled are, and afflicted are going to be exalted. Those who are exalted are going to be cast down. Uh, those who are hungry are going to be filled with good things, and the rich are going to be sent away empty. So you're going to have this overturning of things. And um, I, I think that um, it seems to me that Mary is singing in persona of Zion or Israel, in a sense. She's singing about her own exaltation, her own experience, but she's also singing about the rescue of Israel from affliction and the Lord's acts of his, his mighty deeds done for the sake of Israel. Um, so, and that's all signified by the conception of the Messiah, by this miraculous conception of the son through the agency of the spirit. It's not just, uh, it's uh, the, the birth signifies that overturning of the, of the order of things in Israel. So we've seen that in previous episodes of our series, when we've looked at uh, the, what the uh, miracle births of the patriarchs signify within the context of the stories. It's a, it's a, 
uh, rebirth out of death. It's a liberation from slavery. It's It has to do with the Lord beginning a work that's going to overturn the order of things and bring uh, bring in his kingdom and his reign. And that same thing is happening, of course, here with Jesus. Climactically, Jesus is the one whose birth signifies all this turning things uh, right side up that uh, that Mary sings about. I know we're going to get to this in our next podcast, but that also is pretty evident in Revelation 12, when um, the woman gives birth, gives birth to the son. You have him lifted up into heaven, and then the dragon is thrown down. So you have this reversal right there at the center of the book of Revelation, at least in some sense. The, the pivotal point in Revelation is the birth of a son who then rises, and then the dragon and a third of the angels are cast down. Um, that, that, that picture uh, or that, uh, those historical events are prefigured in the birth of the child, the, the um, yeah, here in Luke and also in Revelation 12. In chapter three, when John describes his mission, he gives as a key text for understanding what he's doing um, part of Isaiah chapter 40. And Christ will do something similar in chapter four, where he presents Isaiah chapter 61, its opening verses. And yet it seems to me that although Isaiah is not mentioned in these earlier chapters, the shadow of Isaiah lies all over them. In the book of Isaiah, we see frequent prophecies punctuated by bursting into song. And this is perhaps the best analogy to that within the text of scripture um, in the narratives. There's constant narrative punctuated by song and rejoicing and prophecy. And it maybe also reminds us of the way in which Isaiah has these miraculous births that are spoken of, the birth of um, the child Emmanuel and um, the way in which it has the whole of the crisis of the invasion of Assyria or the Syro-Ephraimite um, war as something that is released through the promise of these, the birth of key children. And something very similar is happening here. The words that are within the prophecies and the songs are words taken very much from the world of Isaiah. They have that that ring to them of the rejoicing that Isaiah expresses, particularly towards the end of his prophecy. And as we read through this, that sense of the um, this growing humidity of expectation, that these clouds are about to burst and bring rain to the thirsty land, that that is already taking place even before the name of Isaiah is mentioned in chapters three and four. I had um, a slightly strange idea as I was preparing for this. And I feel perhaps mistakenly that now would be a good time to share it. Um, last time round, we looked at Zechariah and we compared him with Ezekiel in various ways. He's, um, he's struck dumb and because he's dumb, he has to write on a tablet to communicate. And he said to make signs to all those around him. And this is very Ezekiel-like. Um, Ezekiel 2 is is struck dumb in chapter three of his prophecies. Possibly he's the only prophet for that to happen. Um, and so in chapter four, he writes on a clay tablet, he engraves on a clay tablet to communicate. And exactly like Zechariah, he is thereby said to, to become a sign to Israel. And 
I wonder if underlining that we've got an extra connection between um, Luke and Ezekiel when we consider some of the time periods involved. Um, Mary in chapter one, he, he said to conceive in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And so she would have given birth to Jesus in the 14th month since these narratives begin. And she then presents Jesus to the temple another 40 days later because it's the uh, end of the time of her purification. And these are unusual details. And I, I think they're uh, foreshadowed to some extent in Ezekiel's sign acts in chapters four to eight. Um, before God's glory leaves the temple in Ezekiel's day, um, Ezekiel is said to lie on his left side for 390 days. So for just over 13 months. And so he would finish that in the 14th month after he'd begun. And then he's told to lie on his right side for 40 days. And immediately afterwards, God's glory, God's glory leaves the temple. And so we have exactly the same sort of a 14th month followed by a, a 40 day um, wait. And I wonder if what's happening is that the, the return of God's glory to his temple in the person of Jesus is following and reversing obviously but um but following exactly the same timetable as when god's glory initially left um uh, the temple in ezekiel's day and um at the end of this 430 days that god's glory is, is going to return to the temple and we've, we've got some other things we could think about while it left against the backdrop of these idolatrous priests and women weeping for tamas in the temple um it says so now in Luke 2, God's glory is going to return to the temple against the backdrop of a faithful priest, um, Simeon, and Anna. Um, and Simeon is said to be in the spirit, as Alistair has mentioned, and Anna is said not to depart from the temple. And so it seems to me that we've, we've got a lot of these um, things suddenly being synchronised here. Seeing a background in Ezekiel, I think, would also fit with chapter 4, where Christ going into the wilderness is very much presented according to the analogy of Ezekiel's um, visions, um, the spirit of the hand of the Lord was upon me and I was led into, and I went in the spirit into such and such a location is very similar to the way that Luke describes Christ going into the wilderness. The order of the um, events that he sees are following the same order that we see within Ezekiel. And then the story of the synagogue in Nazareth um, draws our mind back to the story of um, the gift of the scroll to Ezekiel at the beginning of his prophecy. We have the uh, general connection that we've alluded to before between uh, Ezekiel and his setting in a, an imperial world and uh, Jesus' birth in the setting of uh, the Roman Empire, which is explicitly stated at the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, the decree that goes out from Caesar Augustus to take a census of the world, which gets Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born. Uh, I had a question about that. Uh, I mean, the, there's various censuses in the Old Testament. There's a census that takes place outside of, uh, after Israel uh, leaves Egypt, uh, the book of Numbers, of course, takes two large censuses. David's famous census that's recorded in both Samuel and Chronicles, that's, uh, that's David sinfully taking hold of, his, of Yahweh's hosts and seeking to number them. And I wonder if, uh, in what way 
uh, might Caesar Augustus's census fit in with that those uh, prior events? It seems that in I mean at a very basic level, the census is there to move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Uh, it's there to evoke the setting, the the imperial setting within which Jesus is operating, and Jesus is being given imperial titles. He's Soter and Son of God and so on. But I wonder if the census particularly had any kind of resonance. Is is this some is this uh, is Caesar taking an action like David did and laying hands on the Lord's people uh, and uh, seeking to number them? Is this is this a sign of his uh, of his tyranny or something else going on in the census, or or do we do we just take it as a as a mechanism to get Mary and Joseph in the place where they should be? I mean, it's at least a mechanism, isn't it? I've wondered if one of the things going on here is a, a kind of jubilee moment, just as Cyrus, who is the 50th generation mentioned in Chronicles, is someone who returns Israel to their homeland. Here we have uh, another Gentile king, Caesar, who is returning everyone to the place of their birth, to the place of their ancestry. And then, of course, on the on the back of that, in um, Luke chapter 4, in his own home, in his own hometown, Jesus proclaims um, a jubilee year, the the year of the Lord's favour. So I think a a kind of jubilee moment is certainly part of the backdrop of of what um, Caesar is setting up here. Yeah. So Caesar, Caesar sending the people back to their own hometowns. That's the, that's the jubilee part of the census. Right. I mean, that's, that's my idea. Yeah. I think another thing to bear in mind is the way in which this, um, census policy would actually be part of what precipitated the larger movement towards AD 70. Um, This initial um, census is recalled later on in the book of Acts, but although we don't see it immediately lead to the crisis of AD 70, the seeds are being sown at this point. And so looking back in retrospect, we can see that something ominous is taking place. Perhaps it doesn't need to be said, but um, because it's pretty basic, the fact that we have this census recorded here by Luke just means that, hey, this all happened in datable history. These are genuine events. Um, These are historic facts. Um, Jesus came into the world um, in our history. Um, It's like the apostles in the Nicene Creed, very anti-Gnostic. Uh, at the core is a rehearsal of historical events, what God has done, not a doctrine, not philosophy, not ideas. Uh, but here we have specific chronological and um, uh, historical markers with Caesar. Also, look, Caesar Augustus is the last, um, well, the Roman emperors are the last in the line of beasts, which uh, were the empires under which um, Israel was put after after the return. So, uh, so the, in a sense, whether Caesar knew it or not, he is indeed fulfilling uh, the, uh, the role that he has to be uh, a protector and also an instigator of God's acts through his people, Israel, in history. So there's that too. But I do think that it's important that people at this time uh, in place, in, especially in America, when We've um, turned religion into sentimental thoughts and, and nice feelings uh, that our faith is 
you know, tethered to the facts of history. Um, and it's not just an ideology. Um, it's, um, it's what God actually did in time and space. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm